Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast today is sponsored by Ralph Sitt in honor of the Rabbanim and also Leilui Nishmat, uh, his father, Ovadiah ben Yisrael, ben Esther. And <clears throat> as well, the breakfast is dedicated in loving memory of Ruth Jerome, Ruth Bat Farida, sponsored by her son, Joey Jerome. As well, the cold brew is dedicated in loving memory and Lilu Nishmat Moshe Ben Vida, sponsored by Ralph Dibitesh. Hazaku Baruch. Rabutai, we have a very interesting saga over here. Uh, a story of two brothers. Two brothers, one who is a Sadiq and one who is a Rasha. Their father, <coughs> their father seemingly, <coughs> excuse me, Michila, does not understand <coughs> the depths of depravity that Esav has reached. <clears throat> for whatever reason, and therefore he believes <clears throat> that he's uh, that he's doing him a favor by giving him a beracha. Some opinions say that uh, y- Yitzhak was completely fooled. How? Because it says kisaid befiv. Why did he love his son Esav? Because he had hunted. He put hunting in his mouth. What does that mean? He put hunting in his mouth. That Esav would go out and he would hunt for his father, and his father would be able to eat. Uh, the food that his son that his son would eat. However, that pshat is seemingly a little bit of a challenge to be able to believe, simply because you think if Yitzhak is going to be fooled, you think he's going to be fooled because he got him a hamburger. I mean, like, come on, you know, he got him a nice steak, so Yitzhak likes him. That's what's that's what's going on here. The deeper understanding is Said Befiv that he hunted him with his mouth. That Esav was a tremendous. He was a hunter. He hunted animals, but he also hunted human beings. What does that mean? The Gemara tells us that Yitzhak would, uh, Esav would go to the courthouses and he was able to trip people up. He would hunt them with his words. If there was a thief and the thief would come to the Beddin, Esav wouldn't say, did you steal? Esav would ask the guy when he was caught unawares, he would say, so did you use a knife or a bow? And the guy would be like, a bow. And then he would realize that he had just admitted to the crime. He would hunt people with his words. How did he hunt his father with his words? He'd come and ask his father questions that made it seem like he was a tremendous sadiq. How does one take ma'aser from salt, things that a person is not obligated to give ma'aser from? So his father thought this guy is not just religious, he's extra pious. He's extra special. And that is the meaning uh, as to why he would give Yishak a berach, Yishak would give the Esav the Berakha. But be that as it may, in the moment, in that time that comes, Yishak thinks he's about to pass away. He calls Esav in. He says, go get me the food. I want you to give you a Berakha. In order that my, my nefesh, my soul, should bless you. It's a powerful lesson to learn that the only time a person's berachot are extremely powerful is when they bless from the depths of their heart, from a place of a feeling of gratitude, a place of a feeling of desire to want to pay someone back or to make to make good on something for them. In fact, this idea, tevarachecha nafshi, has many ramifications as well to the way that we give berachot as well. One of the pieces of advice I give to people is to think when they're giving a berachot to their children on Friday night or under the chuppah of all the times that the child made them proud or made them happy. In that moment when a person is thinking of the reasons why they love that particular child, they fulfill this element of l'man tevarachecha nafshi and the berachot doesn't come from the lips, it comes from the soul. In this scenario, Yitzhak says, I want to give a beracha from my soul to Esav. So go out, he says, go get me some of this delicious food and I'll give you this beracha and it will come from the depths of my soul. Rabotai, what is fascinating to note is the words that we find in this story. 
Esav, Yaakov is called by Rivka. Rivka has overheard what Yitzhak has said to Esav. And she says, go get me two sheep from the backyard. I'll prepare the sheep. I'll make him delicious matamim kasher have the, the delicacies that he likes. And then what I'll do is I'll take the uh, fur from the the, uh, the goats or the, the sheep and I'll put it on your arms because Esav was notoriously hairy and Yaakov was very, very like smooth skin. He had no hair on him. I don't know how one mother gives birth to one Sephardic child, one Ashkenaz child, but we'll leave that aside for now. Either way, he puts all of the hair on uh, Yaakov's arm. She puts it on the arm and Yaakov comes to the father. Now I want to give you this, the moment over here. <clears throat> he walks into the room and he says to him, Mechila. <clears throat> And he came to his father, and he says, Dad, here I am. Who are you, my son? Who are you, my son? Fascinating. It almost sounds like he suspects something is on before we've even begun the conversation. Who are you, my son? Yaakov says to his father, Anochi, our, our rabbis tell us that he paused. He says, Anochi, and then he pauses. And then he says, Esav Bechorecha, in order that the words of a lie should not come out of his mouth. So he separated between the words I, and then he said, I, stop. Esav is Bechorecha, is your Bechor. Asiti kasher dibata ilai, I did like you told me to do. Kum na, please rise. Shiva, sit ve'achla, misidi. I want you to eat from what I cooked. From what I hunted, uh, in order that your soul should bless me. So Yitzhak says to his son, How did you cook? How did you hunt so fast today? It was only a short time since I sent you out. Because God, Hashem, your God, He uh, made chance that it should come before me very quickly. Yitzhak says to Yaakov, Gishana, come over here. I want to feel you. I want to feel you. Are you really my son Esav or not? What's going on here? Why does Yitzhak suspect that there's a game afoot? Right? And he comes. And he feels him. The voice is the voice of Yaakov. And the hands are the hands of Esav. Our Mifarshim ask a very powerful question. They ask, if the voice is the voice of Jacob, and the arms, the hands feel like the hands of Esav, so if it was a sports game, you'd have one point to Esav, and one point to Yaakov. So there's a tie break. You need a tie break over here. Why does he think, if it's one and one, that it's actually Esav? Powerful question, right? He's got one proof that it's Yaakov, one proof it's Esav, and then he goes ahead and blesses him. Why in the world would he carry on and assume it's Esav? So I saw the Mefarshim bring the most magnificent idea. Others, two different people, I saw it brought down in their name, a magnificent idea. What's, uh, what was the reason why he chose to believe him, even though he only had one sign? He says that Esav knew that this was the most important moment of his life. And he was afraid that Yaakov would try and come, take it from him. 
Why was he afraid that Yaakov would try and trick him and steal the Berachot? Because actually, Esav knew that Yaakov wasn't stealing the Berachot at all. Esav knew that he'd sold Yaakov the, the Bechorah earlier. So he knows that these Berachot actually belong to Yaakov. Now Yaakov's not going to make a stink about it, but now that it's time to get the Berachot before Yitzhak dies, maybe Yaakov's going to come and claim his deal. So Esav says, you know what? We'll play a double trick. Yaakov, if he tries to come to you, who's he going to sound like? He's going to sound like Esav, trying to trick you to think that he's Esav. So we'll double sketch him, and I'm going to change my voice to sound like Yaakov. Yaakov walks in, and he sounds like Esav. He says, Mi atabani, who are you? Why? Because Esav only, sound, only made up with him that he's going to sound like Yaakov by changing his voice. But look at the way Yaakov speaks to Yitzhak. Yaakov says, please, kumna, please stand up. When he's asked why he cooked, why he managed to find the guy so fast, what does he say? Because you're God, he made a miracle happen and he spoke as Yitzhak says, Hakol kol Yaakov, the voice is the voice of Yaakov. But the hands are the hands of Esav. Both of the elements, we really have three different elements here. One of them was that his voice sounded like Esav, and that actually was a point for which side? For the fact that it was Yaakov. But then there were two things that pointed, excuse me, the voice sounded like Esav, that's true, but the hands were like the hands of Esav. So the hands tell him it's Esav. The voice that speaks in the nice way tells him it's Yaakov. But the fact that it's the voice of Esav also is a side for Esav. So Yitzhak goes with two out of three. Now, the amazing thing to me about all of this story is that when we say Akol Kol Yaakov, the deeper interpretation here is not just the sound of the voice, is the voice of Yaakov. And that is that what we're hearing is that there's a way that Yaakov speaks. There's a way that a Jew speaks. Two different points as to what defines or delineates the speech of a Jew uh, from the speech of someone who is not Jewish. The idea is that a person who speaks, number one, is supposed to speak politely. Kum, na, please stand up. To speak politely is supposed to be the way that a Jewish person speaks. When a person asks for something, please, thank you. All of these things that we think are just manners, they're actually an obligation to speak in a way which represents someone who thinks, breathes, acts, lives the way that God intends him to live in this world. Where do we find these ideas? We know in the Beit HaMikdash, at the bottom of the Me'il, there are uh, bells at the bottom of the Me'il. Our rabbis ask why they're bells? To teach a person, Derech Eretz, that before you walk into somebody's house, you let them know that you're coming in. So therefore, the bells would bang against each other at the bottom of the me'il. There would be a sound coming. And then the guy, if someone's inside, I don't know, he's in his pajamas or what's it called. Or maybe he's, he's counting his money. He doesn't want you to see how much money he has. He has the opportunity to protect himself before you walk into his home. This idea today is expressed by knocking on the door. What a beautiful thing it is to think that knocking on the door is a mitzvah. Could you imagine such an idea? Knocking on the door is a mitzvah. Not because, we think it's just a social convention. 
So you just do this and you don't think about it. But just the knocking at the door illustrates some element of tziniyut, illustrates some element of recognition of someone else's space. Please, thank you, is the voice of Yaakov. The second element of the voice of Yaakov is that when something comes your way that goes well, what's your response? Your response is, Baruch Hashem. Be'ezrat Hashem, with the help of Hashem. Im Hashem, if God wants. I was, uh, I noticed that, you know who else speaks this way all the time? If you ever sat, sat and spoke with someone who's Arab, every word out of their mouth is, Inshallah, Mashallah. Right? That's how it goes. If God wants it, please God. Inshallah, Mashallah. Also, they happen to be children of Avraham Avinu. Razin de Ma'aminim, the prince of those who have Emunah. Rabotai. Yaakov, Akol, Kol Yaakov. And it always struck me. Yaakov is able to switch his voice to sound like Esav. Because he thinks that that's what he needs to do in order to get the Be'achot. But you also have a way that you speak. And our rabbis tell us that while Yaakov was able to change the pitch of his voice, he was unable to not speak like a Jew. Even for the sake of the Berachot, he couldn't not say please. He couldn't not speak politely. He couldn't not say, because of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ki Lefanai. He was unable to not speak that way. So Rabotai, if we start slowly to change our speech patterns, then the voice indeed becomes the voice of Yaakov. That when we speak to people, we speak nicely. When we uh, are talking about a business, we don't say, and then I did the most amazing move. You ever notice this, Rabotai? If you ask someone about a business deal that they did, what does the guy say? The guy says, oh, I came up with this genius move. I told the guy in the meeting, I told him, you know what, why don't you do this and you do that? And the guy didn't realize I was hitting him like this, amazing. It was so clever, I don't know how I came up with it. Meanwhile, what happens if the guy messes up a business deal? He loses a shidduch, he loses a partner, he loses a friend. What does he say? I guess it wasn't meant to be. Hashem, we don't know the mysterious ways of God. We take all the credit and we give God all the blame. Hashem and us sometimes have the worst partnership. Could you imagine someone being in a partnership with us where we get all the dividends and the other guy gets all the losses? Unbelievable. Think about that. So when a person sees that something wonderful happened to them, the first words out of their mouth should be, Be'ezat Hashem. I did, you don't understand. Hashem, with Hashem's help, God gave me the most amazing idea. To speak that way is a way that a Jew speaks even if it costs him. Yaakov is unable to change even for the biggest berachot in the whole world. And these were not simple things. I need you to understand. This berachah from Yitzchak was so powerful that even Esav, Esav Arashah, it meant so much to him he was willing to kill his brother for it. Okay, he chases him to get revenge for this berachah. So what does it mean to speak like a Jew? What does it mean? What does it mean that Yedai Midei Esav, the hands belong to Esav? When we come to Shemot, we're going to read about Moshe Rabbeinu. When Moshe Rabbeinu sees two people, and one of them lifts his hands up to the other one. And what does he say? Rasha lamatar lakerecha. Why are you lifting your hands against your brother? Even not to hit him. Even with an intent, just lifting your hand is enough to call him a rasha. Our rabbis explain that each one of us, we had our own dominion. Esav produced warriors. Jewish people are not usually warriors. Jackie Mason says always about this. He says, you put Jews in a uniform, they're terrifying. You take a Jew out of uniform, nobody's afraid of a Jew. Right? It's a fascinating thing. He says, with other countries, 
right? You see a, you know, a guy on the street, you're terrified of him. Put him in a uniform, they have the worst army ever. Right? It's a funny thing that. Right? Now, it, we, we did not produce warriors, but the thing is, it's so interesting. What's the difference between a punch and a, and a call? The voice, even just in its physical sense, if I scream to you, you can hear me from very far away. If I try and punch you from very far away, unless I'm Inspector Gadget, I can't hit you. The power of Esav is in proximity. The power of Yaakov is global. Our words can reach the very heavens. But what we need to understand is, it's only when we use our voice in the right way that our voice is powerful. What does that mean? The Gemara says that when a person uses nivul peh, they speak inappropriately, they're swearing, they're cursing, they speak lashon hara. They ruin their ability to pray. Their tefillot are blunted. They're less powerful. So when a person speaks hakol, the first call, if you speak properly, then kol Yaakov. That's ironically the name of our sidur, the Beta Knesset. So if you have the voice, if you speak properly to people, kindly, nicely, politely, if a person speaks and they're always mentioning God's name, thank God I did this, Baruch Hashem I did this, if God wills that this will happen, etc., etc., then call Yaakov, then they have the power of the voice of Yaakov, the voice of Tefillah. So I always think to somebody, say to myself, and I say to others as well, sometimes people say, Rabbi, I've been praying for something for so long and it's not working. Sometimes I like to ask them, I say, well, I don't know about your prayer, but even, let's say, your prayer is perfect. Maybe you're having the kavanah. Maybe you're coming to shul, and still your prayers are not working. Maybe it's got nothing to do with your prayers. Maybe it's the machine itself. You know what it's like? I remember once I was driving, and all of a sudden, uh, the car just stops driving. I pull over to the side of the road, the car won't start, I'm looking under the hood. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a yeshiva boy. I don't know anything under the hood of the car, right? You know, the only thing, the reason why I ever would have lifted the hood of a car was to check if someone hid the afikoman there, right? This is not exactly my dominion. So I'm calling the guy, and you know, Hazi, every person who's in this situation has experienced this. You call a mechanic and you're like, listen to what the car, listen to the sound it's making. You put the phone there. But this was before we had phones. So I called up somebody, I went to the payphone. I'm like, the car is going, I'm trying to imitate it with my mouth. I'm such a dip. The guy comes all the way, he charges me $150. There's nothing wrong with the car, honey. You ran out of gas. Right? I, I always say, that I'm the type of person, I don't know if you, the, the world is divided into two, type, two types of people. I'm the type of person that when the light, the light goes on on the gas gauge, I tell myself, I know my car. There's plenty of time left. My wife is telling me to go to the gas station. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. We play, she says, it says zero miles. I'm like, I know, they tell that because they want people to go to the gas station. She's like, so go to the gas station. Right? I said, no, no, don't worry, we get there, we'll get there, it's fine, it's fine. But you know what? Sometimes you have too much faith, you know? Anyway, I pull over to the side. There's no gas in the car. I think the car's broken. The car's not broken. You didn't put gas in the car. Sometimes a person's tefillot are not being answered. And they think there's a problem with the tefillot. I didn't pray the right way. I didn't have the right kavanot. Maybe the minyan. Maybe I'm not praying in the right synagogue. Dib. You're praying in the right synagogue. Your prayers are beautiful. Your kavanot are amazing. You're the Arizal in our generation. Amazing. Except... That when you're in the office or you're on the trading floor, you're dropping F-bombs, Rohi. You're, you're cursing this one. You're saying you're, you're, your language is, is gruff. It's inappropriate. 
And I know between guys, heke, heke, everyone likes to feel, so they start swearing in front of one another. They talk like their mouth is in the gutter. There's a price that you pay for that. The price is that then your call is not the call of Yaakov. If you speak badly about other people, lashon hara, if you're impolite, if you're impolite, if there's a waiter in a restaurant and you say, you, come here. Instead of saying, excuse me, sir. Instead of speaking like a gentleman, like a mensch. You know, I think sometimes we all think that no one can tell that we're Jewish. A lot of times people somehow, they can tell that we're Jewish, even if we're not wearing a kippah. And if you ever doubted this, just go to the shuk for five minutes. Yeah? And what happens? Or, or in Tijuana, in Mexico, one of these places. They tell you, ah, oh, shalom aleichem. Like, how do you know? Right? I'm not wearing New York Yankees. I'm wearing a Phoenix, Arizona hat. Right? You know, why would you think that I'm Jewish? Somehow we give off that vibe. I don't know what the answer is. So if someone's going to know and you're speaking improperly, it's a chilul Hashem. Our voice has the power to go to travel very, very, very far. But we just have to take care of it and make sure that we're using it properly. And there should be no reason and no time that we allow ourselves, even at great cost, to speak to someone inappropriately, to humiliate them. A person once told me, you know, the first thing I do when I go into a meeting is he says, I make the guy feel like a piece of garbage. The first thing I do, I make him realize he doesn't know anything at all about the case. He doesn't know anything at all about the, what's it called, about the, the law in this place. He doesn't know anything at all about me or what I'm capable of. And once I have the guy, you know, shaking, then I offer him the settlement. And most times when they're afraid, they're worried they're not going to win the case because I just made them feel like two cents. You know, then I, what's it called, then I won the case. I said to him, you know what, you might win a lot of cases down here, but in the courtroom of Shamayim, you might lose the biggest cases of all. When you're arguing and begging and uh, pleading for your life, and Borei Olam says, with this tongue you're coming to me? With a tongue that only speaks, uh, you know, to shamble and to cut people down to size, make them feel like two cents? Some people love, the only way they feel big is when they make other people feel small. There's a price to that. That's not kol kol Yaakov. And then when we wonder, when we're not being heard, Hashem says, Rohi. You know, there's no, there's, the car's not broken. There's no gas in the tank. May Hashem bless us always to speak properly. To have and to sound always uh, like a kol kol Yaakov, to be discernible by our speech, uh, that we are the children of Yaakov Avinu. And through that, may all of our prayers be answered. Amen Amen.